Hello, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Assad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Dr. Lior Sternfeld, and we'll be talking about his latest work, Between Iran and Zion, Jewish Histories of 20th Century Iran, published by Stanford University Press. Lior is a social historian of the modern Middle East with a particular interest in Jewish and other minorities' histories of the region. His research examines the origins of third worldism in the Middle East, and he received his BA and MA from Ben Gurion University in Israel and his PhD in 2014 from the University of Texas at Austin. His teaching interests include histories of modern Iran and the Middle East, Jewish histories of the Middle East, and social movements in the Middle East and beyond. His book, which is the culmination of much of his work and the subject of our discussion today, examines the integration of the Jewish communities in Iran into the nation-building projects of the 20th century. It is also the first systematic study into the development of Iranian Jewish communities vis-a-vis ideologies and institutions such as Iranian nationalism, Zionism, and constitutionalism, among others. Without further ado, I now welcome Lior to our podcast. Welcome, Lior. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Assad, and uh, thank you for the very kind introduction. <laughs> well, it's a great pleasure to have you. And, you know, as part of our tradition here at the New Books Network, we always like to begin our interviews with a look into the intellectual lives of our interviewees. So would you be able to share with us a little bit about your intellectual journeys and interests, namely how you came to become a historian of the Middle East, particularly of the modern Middle East, and what led you to writing a book on Iranian Jews? Um, so this is a, this is a great question. Uh, but like all things, uh, it happened by coincidence. <laughs> um, I went to study, um, uh, Jewish history and Middle Eastern studies for undergrad in Ben-Gurion University, as you mentioned. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know what, what was going to be, what's going to be my, uh, my direction in undergrad. Um, I wasn't so sure about Middle Eastern studies in general, um, and uh, at the end of the first year, I uh, I was able to resolve most of my uh, conflicts and and uh, and doubts. And in the second year, we had to take um, seminars that are it, it was organized around countries. And at that time, I started to think, okay, so maybe I will go to an MA program. Maybe I will focus on something. So I took uh, two seminars, one on Morocco and one on Iran. Uh, I took Morocco in, with the thought that if I'll go to grad school, I'll focus on Morocco because as an Israeli, I can, I can travel to Morocco. Um, and I took the seminar on Iran because this was in 2005. It was just when Ahmadinejad was elected. Um, and everybody talked about Iran and Ahmadinejad and the Holocaust denial and everything. And <clears throat> I just want to, to make sense of it. I wanted to see, I wanted to learn more about the country so I can, I can understand it better. Um, and um, at the end of this seminar, I was completely drawn to, uh, <laughs> to Iran. And uh, the next year, in my third year, which is in Israel, it's the last year, I took another seminar on the Iranian revolution, and I also started to take Persian. So I knew that my direction is going to be studying Iran. 
um, but I studied I studied Musadek and the Musadek period and the nationalist movement and uh, I knew that if there's one thing that I'm certainly not going to to study uh, it's actually the topic of Iranian Jews <laughs> 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 because every time that we <clears throat> that we encounter it in the course of study um, we got uh, the, the only book out there was uh, Habib Levy's book uh, on uh, the comprehensive history of the Jews of Iran, uh, which is a book that covers the history of, Ira- of Jewish Iranians from uh, the Babylonian exile to, uh, to modern times. And it was published in 1961. Um, and you know, as, as a student, you think, wow, if this is the most exciting this field could get, and if this is in 19, in, in 2000 something, we still go back to the book that was published in 1961 as, as, the, as our go-to source, uh, maybe there's really nothing to write about. <laughs> uh, so I went to, uh, I started my PhD program again with the thought of writing about the nationalist movement um, about the legacy of the nationalist movement, I thought about connecting between the uh, the Jabai Meli of the 1950s to the uh, Jabai Azadi of the 1970s, and um, and th- this was I I started to think about my PhD project as, as something along those lines, um, and in my last seminar in grad school. I took a course with my advisor, Kamran Rai, and I, it was on revolutionary ideologies. Um, and I decided just to get it out of my system, to write one paper on the Jews of Iran during the revolution. I said, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not going to find anything, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to seal this deal for forever. Like, there's nothing to look. Uh, in that direction, or maybe maybe I'll find something that is yet to be covered. <laughs> and um, and I I started researching the period of the revolution uh, with uh, you know in Iran uh, from the eyes of the Jewish communities, and this is when I came across the the story that had become my first article and the basis for my uh, fourth chapter in the book, uh, and this is the Jews during the revolution. Um, and then I realized that th- there is a lot to study there. Um, and uh, and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a fantastic coincidence. Uh, we're glad that, sh- that, you know, that that happened to you. Um, and so this is a great transition into my next question, um, which is actually methodological. So you open up your introduction by enumerating some of the challenges of writing Iranian Jewish history. You say that, quote, first, Jewish history is a field traditionally characterized by a lachrymose historical narrative, one that presents Jewish history as homogeneously tragic, regardless of geographical or sociopolitical contexts, end quote. And then you also say, second, the much amplified lachrymose approach to Jewish historiography appeared after the Holocaust and related to the eventual dominance of Zionist historiography in the writing of this Jewish history, end quote. 
So could you elaborate uh, this for some of our listeners, especially the more uh, historically minded ones, and speak to how you grappled with such challenges as you were doing your work? So this is um, to understand the, the historiographical tradition of Jewish histories in the Middle East. Uh, this is this is where you have to start. You have to start with uh, with this mindset of the lacrimous history. Um, I I first came across uh, across this um, understanding when I when I read uh, an article that was written by Salo Baron, uh, a Jewish histor- historian and philosopher, um, and he wrote in 1928. An article that is called "Ghetto and Emancipation," um, and in in this article he writes about the, um, you know with it was in the relatively early stages of Zionism and he realized he analyzed how Zionism is rewriting Jewish history because eventually Zionism is not just a political movement it's also in a way a historical movement. It comes to reinterpret Jewish existence in the world, and it comes to uh, offer, um, I, I want to say, some kind of political, spiritual redemption. And uh, when you offer this kind of comprehensive deal, uh, you have to explain why it was necessary. And then the, the Zionist historiography started to uh, analyze uh, Jewish existence as, uh, as made of nothing but ordeals and pogroms and persecution and, um, and harassment and, and, and that's it. Because, and, and eventually, I mean, there's a lot written on, on the negation of exile. It's eventually, it's looking at 2,000 years of Jewish Exile of Jewish diaspora outside uh, biblical land of Israel um, as 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 a black hole in Jewish history. Um, and you see, I mean, Salo Baron gives a beautiful example in his article that he writes. It shows how historians of the French Revolution uh, of, of of sorry of medieval France. Uh, talk about how Jews did not enjoy any uh, any civil rights, um, and then he asked, "Who did have civil rights in France before the revolution?" <laughs> okay, so it's true, Jews did not have civil rights. Who did? <laughs> uh, so in that sense, it allowed me to look on the writings on Jewish histories of Iran in the same way. Like, okay, so we say that Jews uh, were, you know, um, had no political uh, agency, had no rights. They were, uh, they, they lived in the periphery of the society. But then, I mean, what, what you can see in, uh, in recent um, historiography on the Middle East is that, okay, now we're not looking on the Jews as living in a bubble. We now look at the Jewish communities of the Middle East as part of the Middle Eastern societies. So it allows us to think about Jews, again, as part of the societies. I know that it sounds uh, trivial, but <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> if you look at the historiography, it's definitely not something 
Uh, trivial. It's a great intervention. So my second question is actually very much relevant to, to this question about being part of society. It's actually about immigration and demographics. Um, and so this is discussed very, very uh, uh, strongly in your first chapter where, you know, we of, today we often hear this word, you know, demographics used in our political moment, typically in a negative way, right? We hear things like demographic boom or demographic threat, um, quote unquote. In your book, you write about the immigration of Jews into Iran during the first half of the 20th century, and you identify two quite uh, divergent sources of this immigration. The first of these being Polish Jews who fed, fled Europe after World War II in search of a better life. And the second one, which um, prior to your book, I had no knowledge of, are Iraqi Jews who came to Iran in two waves, right? The first that came between 1914 and 1918, and the second following the Farhud massacre in 1941. Um, and I found this to be very interesting because here we have a group of Middle Eastern Jews fleeing one Middle Eastern country into another rather than to Europe. And I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about both of these groups, the, the Polish Jews and the Iraqi Jews, and how they were received in, in Iran during that time. So, uh, again, this is, this is an opportunity to see, them, uh, to see the Jewish community as part of Iran and Iran as part of the Middle East, which is, again, something that is not always uh, obvious um, based on historiogra historiography of the Middle East. Um, so I'll, I'll start with the Polish refugees. Um, in the 19... So uh, you, I, I'll say European uh, migration to, to Iran started in the late 1920s with the, uh, the rise of anti-Semitism in Germany and uh, certainly after... Uh, the Nazi party comes to power in 1933. Uh, we see uh, a good number of, of Jewish professionals that could not uh, keep their jobs in Germany move to Iran as part of European consortium uh, and, and German companies as well that worked in the railroads, in the infrastructure. Um, so German engineers, uh, Jewish engineers, could not uh, keep working for the companies in Germany, but they could... Uh, if they move to Iran, so um, so we see them moving in in smaller numbers. Many of them were students, engineers. Uh, the excavation of Persepolis. Uh, many of the many of the German archaeology students were actually Jews that chose to relocate to Iran for the for this project, and it was headed by Hans Tertzfeld, who was of Jewish heritage himself, and and suffered for it. Um, and and then the major the 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 more significant wave came in 1941, uh, and this was a group of uh, of Polish refugees that were sent to gulags um, in 1939 after the uh, the Soviet occupation of Poland of Eastern Poland. They were sent to gulags and labor camps in Central Asia. And after uh, the Soviet Union joined uh, the Allies in 1941, um, Stalin decided to give amnesty to all the Polish prisoners. Uh, among them, there were many, many Jews. Um, it, it's a very tragic story because uh, about half of those who originally were sent to the gulags uh, died in, in over these two years. Um, and uh, eventually we know about something around 400,000 Polish refugees that came to Iran in 1941 to 1943. Uh, about five to 10,000 of them were Jews. 
Um, and they're accepted. I mean, there was this uh, this scene in in the big cities, especially in Tehran, is found that we could see the development of of a new Polish middle class culture, urban culture that really transformed the way that um, Iranian culture. Um, you know the way that Iranian culture actually absorbed um, habits and 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 um, and practices of, of of Polish middle class um, in in Tehran and Isfahan. So we see Polish clubs and we see bars and cabaret and we see uh, hair salons for women. Um, and I, I I bring many examples, but in terms of the relation between the Polish Jews and, and Iranian Jews, we see a very uh, interesting dynamic that for the Iranian Jews, uh, first of all, they were, uh, in the beginning, they were very happy to be able to support uh, their um, their brethren, their Polish brethren, when they came to, to Iran and they needed shelter and they needed to uh, get their life together. Um, and we see that uh, the Jewish community raised money and uh, and found places and supported. Uh, in the beginning, the refugees were put in uh, in refugee camps, um, and they helped them to uh, to find jobs in in Iran. But then uh, they also started to look at at, uh, at the Polish refugees, at the Jewish Polish refugees, as as morally, almost morally inferior to them. And this is a, a, an interesting case of uh, reverse Orientalism, <laughs> that we see them looking at them as 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 uh, you know they they have no. Uh, for example, we have a letter um, on of, a, of an Iranian rabbi that uh, that was appalled that uh, that a daughter of a, of a respected Polish family uh, went to work in a bar, and like how could she? It's a disgrace not just to her community but to all of us. Uh, and um, and we see on on that background uh, tensions, but also we see many love stories, and we see uh, uh, the Polish refugees really felt that they are embra- overall that they were embraced by Iran and by the Iranian Jews. So again, it's a story of uh, not not black and white, but uh, but both, <laughs> and and much gray in the middle. So how did the Iraqi Jews fare in Iran? The Iraqi Jews, and this is a great attestment to the uh, to the to Iran being part of the Middle East, because the Iraqi and Iranian Jewish communities had strong ties from from for centuries, actually, and uh, and we see that um, over the years, you know, the the religious leadership of Iran was trained in the seminaries in Baghdad and Basra. And uh, families were um, were in in their marriages over the years, um, and they ha- they shared uh, business interests, uh, especially uh, along the border in the area of Abadan and, and Basra. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, the first wave was uh, of of actual immigration, not just fearing 
um, connections. The first immigration was 1914 to 1918 when uh, Jews tr looked to avoid conscription to the Ottoman army. Um, so they moved to Iran and, est and established themselves mostly in, in Abadan. Um, they felt, I mean, Abadan was a, was a good choice for them. Uh, the culture was much closer to the Iraqi culture. Arabic was a spoken language there. Um, they could cross the border and be in Iraq again. So it, it, was, it was good for them. Um, in 1941, we see the immigration, we see the second wave of immigration after the Farhud. And this is a much more serious wave of immigration. Uh, this, this time, uh, some of them settled in Abadan, but many of them moved to Tehran. And we see them establishing themselves as a, as a distinct community. Uh, they establish a, a, an Iraqi synagogue, an Iraqi school, Iraqi... Um, Iraqi club, um, and they really keep this uh, unique structure of the community, of the Iraqi community, for, for many years. Um, and this immigration, this wave of immigration, the expansion of the Iraqi community in Tehran lasted for, uh, for many years, because like in the second part of it, we see Iraqi Jews that migrated to Israel and then realized that Israel is not a good place for them. Uh, but they couldn't go back to Iraq, so the second best choice was to go back was to go to Iran, and uh, and they actually uh, strengthened the, the the Iraqi community and um, and at, at the peak of it we can count around fifteen thousand Iraqi Jews in between Tehran and, and Abadan. So now I'd like to turn to the question of uh, Jewish activism and intellectual production. Um, in mid-century Iran. So the history you present about Jewish involvement in the Tude party, a leftist and anti-fascist party led primarily by local intelligentsia and workers' unions, gives us a picture of an actively and consciously involved Jewish community with a lot of agency, if I do say so myself. Um, so could you share a little bit about the role these Jews played in political activism by mid-century in Iran? Yeah, so this was this was something new for for Jews and non-Jews. Uh, the opening up of the political sphere was something new. Um, and in the early forties, uh, before the the uh, before Reza Shah was overthrown, uh, we see uh, strong um, Nazi influence and Nazi propaganda, which also correlated with uh, chauvinistic Iranian nationalism that was very, um, I'd say, uh, had some strong anti-Semitic uh, attributes. Um, and the force that came uh, to counter it was the Tudor Party. So many Jews joined the Tudor Party um, not because of their uh, communist ideology or communist commitment, but because this was the place that that counter that that served as a counterweight for the uh, anti-Semitic and anti and the xenophobic uh, forces in um, in in um, in Iran. And in fact, one of my interviewees told me something that really um, stayed with me. He was born in Tehran in the 1930s and in the early 1930s, and he joined the Tudeh at the age of 16. 
and uh, and you know he went he, he was sent to prison uh, about half a dozen times before he left Iran in the 1970s his first time in prison was uh, shortly after he joined the party and he told me I knew nothing about Marx or Marxism when I joined the Tude. Uh, I joined because this was the only place that they didn't call me Juhud and Juhud is a derogatory term for Jews and he, and he told me like this was the only place that accepted me that wanted me to be there um, and the second part of the sentence was, I learned Marxism and, and Marxist ideology in prison, where, where the leadership of the parties opened classrooms in prison to teach, uh, to teach Marxism. Fascinating. So I, I guess on that question, um, I'd like to ask now about the political stances of these various leftist Iranian Jews towards Israel. By this point, we know that Israel had come into existence as a state, and yet at the same time, a significant number of Iranian Jews had not migrated to it and stayed involved in Iranian politics. You note the emergence of a few publications, two of them being Bani Adam and the other one being Nisan. The former, you say, was softer and much more conciliatory toward Israel, and the latter you argue, took a more critical approach. If I may quote you, there's a quote in your book that really stuck out to me. You say, quote, this arguably reflects the multivocal quality of Jewish leftist politics at that time. Regarding Zionism, Jewish Iranian publishers, editors, and journalists of this era remained largely indifferent. Although many of Iran's Jewish leaders sympathized with the Zionist cause, their political allegiance belonged first and foremost to Iran. Quite naturally, this situation caused major frustration in Israel, a state whose existence was, and still is, premised on the notion that the destinies of world Jewries and the state of Israel are inexorably intertwined. To say that the predominant Jewish-Iranian interpretation of Zionism differed widely from the political Zionism espoused by Israel's establishment is an understatement, end quote. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about these multivalent and multivocal political stances of Iranian Jewish leftists, as well as their views toward Zionism, and how did, how did they interpret that as a concept, and how did it differ from the concept that was espoused by the Israeli state establishment? Uh, uh- Thank you. Sorry, it's, a, it's a loaded question, it, I know. <laughs> I'm going to take the next hour to address it. <laughs> Let's try five minutes. <laughs> so, um, uh, this, is, this is great because it's, it really shows the complexity of, of, the, of Iranian Jewish thought. Um, and I think that one of the greatest ironies of Jewish-Iranian history is that Iran was the only place in the Middle East where the Zionist movement could operate openly, especially after 1948. Uh, and, and the population was pretty sympathetic to Zionism. But Iran is the only country in the Middle East where the Jewish community chose to stay overwhelmingly. Um, and, and we see the exactly uh, the, 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 the mirror image of what was going on in the other countries that you know, the Middle East was emptied of its Jews by 1956, and Iran, the community only grew. So, um, so what we see here is um, it, it has several layers. Um, one of them has a lot to do with uh, with the political activism uh, that we mentioned earlier. Um, Jews supported the Tude. The Tude supported Israel. 
the Tudor was one of the <clears throat> of the strongest uh, supporters of the de facto recognition of Iran in Israel. Um, the Tudor supported the, the partition plan. The Tudor supported, and also you have to remember that in that in 1948, 1950, 1951, um, Zionist movement had um, a legitimate um, case to present itself as a, as a post-colonial movement. And this is something that we see many Iranian communists talking about, many Iranian intellectuals talk about, that, I mean, this is a post-colonial movement, this is a movement that fought the British imperialism, that fought, that had the support of, of the Soviet Union, uh, that, so it wasn't, it wasn't the, the same, uh, it, it didn't have the same <clears throat> image of, of the movement that, uh, intellectuals in the Arab countries had for for Zionism, for example. So it was easier for Jews to to support uh, to be part of the two and, and also support uh, Zionism or the Zionist organizations. Um, but when we talk about um, what what kind of interpretation uh, they had that was different from the the official establishment interpretation, as as you said, um, Zionist interpretation forced or could not see decent existence of Jews in places other than Israel, and especially not in the Arab or Muslim world. And it goes back to the to my uh, discussion on Salo Baron earlier, that it, it's just <clears throat> no place other than Israel can offer Jews decent existence. Um, <clears throat> what we see here is that the Iranian Jews felt that Zionism was broadly a good idea, but not for them. Um, they felt the need to support the Jewish homeland for those who can't stay in their places, in their homelands. Much like, for much Egypt. like American Jews, would you, would you? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And you know what? In the mid 1960s, Israel realized that they cannot look at the Jewish community of Iran in the same way that they look at the Jewish community in places like Egypt or or Iraq or or Syria, for example. Uh, and they have to to think about the Jewish community in, in the same way that they think about Jewish communities, and this is, I'm quoting from uh, from a memo of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they have to look at the Jewish community in the same way that they look on Jewish communities in the US, in South Africa, and Australia. So uh, Jews that were secure, that were safe, and that they are not going to uh, to leave their homelands and come to Israel en masse. Um, and w- another interpretation that was very strong uh, among the Jews was the uh, spiritual Zionism. So the, the religious role of Israel as a, as a religious homeland, um, as the direction of the prayer, as the Kible. So, um, and there's another, there's a quote that I use in the epigraph for my book uh, from Roya Hagakian's uh, Journey from the Land of No. That she writes on uh, on <clears throat> on her family uh, Passover Seder night in 1977, and she writes something. My family dreamt of the land of milk and honey, but wanted to wake up in Tehran. And I think it captures uh, the sentiment of what Zionism was for them. They wanted they 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 could dream about the land of milk and honey, but the, eventually they wanted to live in Tehran. Fascinating. There's a lot to chew on there. So now that we're, we're in Tehran, right? 
I'd like to move on now to the last 40 years or so, which constitutes, I believe, the final part of your book. Um, and so one thing, again, if I may quote you, there's, there's something you say about the Shah's uh, projects that stuck out to me. You, you, you write that the paradoxical outcome of minorities being well integrated demonstrated, quote, the unintended success of the Shah's most significant project, that is the full integration of minorities into Iranian society, which allowed them to operate freely regardless of the myopic interests of their communities, which eventually led to the revolution. So could you tell us a little bit about the position of Iranian Jews during and after the revolution? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> by the by the 1970s, <clears throat> we see the Iranian Jewish community pretty much in many ways assimilated. Uh, they were overrepresented in all the important places. Um, they... Um, no doubt that they consider themselves Iranian Jews, first and foremost Iranians of Jewish faith. Many in, in similar way to the places, <clears throat> to places of of uh, of you know of Jewish past in the in Germany or the U.S. or other places uh, like this. And for them, um, <clears throat> even though the Shah was considered to be. <clears throat> Sorry, considered to be a, a supporter of the Jewish community or a friend of the Jewish community, the younger generation, especially, also looked at the Shah as a dictator and abuser of human rights, and um, they couldn't only consider the the friendship of the Shah to the Jewish community. Um, and this is this is the unintended consequences that the Shah really succeeded in helping the Jews think of of themselves as Iranians first. And uh, and we see that there was some generational um, difference between uh, those who supported the Shah and those who did not, but also. We see that the way that the rabbis, the the leadership, the religious leadership, talked about <clears throat> the revolutionary events, and they realized. And Hacham Yedidia Shofet, who is uh, who was the the religious leader of Tehran, he he was also a personal friend of the Shah, and with tears he told the Shah, "I love you, and I wish you could stay here forever, but it's time for you to go." Um, and he joined the protesters. He walked in the front uh, of a demonstration in Tehran, the front line of demonstration in Tehran. Um, and I mean, this is this is something that was very hard for many people to see. Um, <clears throat> and also, there is a story of the Jewish hospital in Tehran. That for me, this was uh, this was the the biggest revelation. Um, that. The Jewish hospital um, proactively reached out to the revolutionary leadership and asked them uh, for the location of of their protest before the demonstration started, and sent ambulances uh, in collaboration with Ayatollah Talakhani, uh, who was one of the leaders of the revolution. And they sent ambulances to these places to pick up their wounded protesters because the Jewish hospital is the only one that did not turn protesters to the hand of the Savak, the secret service. Um, and um, <clears throat> and also because of the special status of the Jews, 
the Sava could not uh, force, um, it could not enter forcibly the the Jewish hospital and, and pick up protests as they could in other uh, public hospitals. So we see, and and when you when I interviewed people from that worked in the in this hospital, you can see people who did not have sympathies to the revolutionaries or the revolutionary ideas, and they supported the Shah and supported the Pahlavi regime. But for them, it wasn't about the revolution; it wasn't about politics. For them, this was uh, a biblical commandment of love thy neighbor like thyself. Um, and this is what is written on the entrance to the hospital and this was, for them it was a humanitarian mission um, but eventually it, it it was a major um, act of supporting the revolution uh, and it was recognized as such by, by Ayatollah Khomeini so um, you see how complicated and uh, and sometimes dark the, the, all the interconnections between politics and religion and uh, and national identity and loyalty to the Shah and loyalty to the Jewish community and loyalty to the Iranian people. Could you share a little bit about the position of Jews after the Iranian revolution and up until the present moment? Oh, that's uh, that's another um, that that's another book. <laughs> another complex story. Uh, yeah, because I, there are so many ups and downs. Mm. Um, in the beginning, Jews were I mean, Jews as part of the Iranian nation had this utopic idea of what Iran is going to look like after the revolution. Uh, in fact, one of the members of the Constitutional Drafting Committee um, <clears throat> was a Jewish uh, activist, a two-day activist. His name was Aziz Daneshrad. And he had the idea of abolishing the reserved seat in the parliament for the religious minorities. Because he thought that now, with the new constitution and the new revolution, uh, Jews and other minorities could be elected as part of the general parties. They don't have to have reserved seats. And they took this idea to uh, Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, the first president of the republic, and to um, uh, Bazar Gan, who was the interim prime minister. And they both told them, are you crazy? You're, if you're going to uh, give up that reserved seat, you're not going to have any representation. And what this conversation showed me was that the minorities and the Jewish community was much more optimistic, maybe dreamer in the, in the sense of what can become of the Iranian revolution than the, actually the, the leadership of the revolution. And that speaks I, to the extent to which they were so well integrated in society. Yeah. Yeah. And even, and, and, I mean, they perhaps they have they had higher hopes than the rest of the Iranian nation. <laughs> and, oh, that says something. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, two months later, uh, the, the community was traumatized with the execution of um, Habib al-Kanyan, one of the leaders of the community uh, who was executed for um, spreading corruption on earth and spying for Israel and uh, other bogus uh, um, accusations. 
uh, it was executed without any opportunity for a fair trial or appeal. And it got the, the Jewish community really scared. And the leadership of the community went to come to meet with uh, with the leader, with Khomeini. And, uh, and, the, and they wanted to have some kind of clarification. Are we safe here? What, what's your plans for us? And the same day, uh, Khomeini issued uh, one of the most, uh, one of the well-known uh, fatwas, uh, which is uh, Iranian Jews are our brothers and sisters. Uh, they are not Zionists. Zionists are, are not really Jews. <clears throat> so we must protect the Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, citizens of Iran. They are part of us, and uh, and we must uh, make the we must make the difference between, or we must know the difference between Jewish Judaism and Zionism. <clears throat> and then uh, there was an attempt to show after the Iran-Iraq war started, there was an attempt to uh, recruit many Jews to the Iranian army as show of solidarity and commitment to the Iranian nation. Um, there was also discrimination against Jews that was, uh, I would say, stronger in the in the first decade of the revolution. <clears throat> but we see we see that uh, during uh, the presidency of Khatami, and I'm now jumping, you know, it's fast forwarding maybe too much. But during the period of Khatami, we see uh, new, an attempt to restart the relations between uh, the Iranian Jews and, and the Iranian leadership. And Khatami famously visited the synagogue in Tehran. And uh, and we see the beginning of new Jewish publications in Iran in this period. Uh, it, it, things took a different turn under Ahmadinejad, um, and there was some more um, open conflict between the Jewish leadership and Ahmadinejad. Uh, and then Rouhani had different approach to uh, to the Jewish community and um, and we know about the tweets that he sent uh, on, on Rosh Hashanah um, uh, you know Shana Tova to all the Jews and especially the Jews of Iran <clears throat> and he also uh, in under his administration uh, the government unveiled the monument uh, commemorating the Jewish fallen soldiers from the Iran-Iraq war, which I think is a very symbolic, very important symbolic step uh, because it's, um, in many ways, it shows that uh, the Jews are part of, the, of this important Iranian moment. Um, and there were other uh, pieces of legislation that Jews tried to push uh, for many years and and recently were approved by the by the majlis. So um, the story of the Jews after the revolution is not less complicated <laughs> than before the revolution. Thank you, Leo, for 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 sharing that that bit. I very much appreciate the the, the complexities uh, often get overlooked, and we, we we hear a very linear sort of narrative again. The lacrimose tradition comes back. So I very much appreciate you. Thank you sharing that. Uh, before we close off, and just as a small teaser to our listeners, um, could you share with us what you're currently working on and what we can look forward to seeing from you in the future? Yeah, um, I, I'll tell you all I know at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Works for us. 
I'm working on two on two projects. One is uh, the origins of third worldism in the Middle East. And it's in a way, it's looking at the Bandon conference as the end of the movement rather than the beginning of it. Um, and we see a few steps between the 1930s and, and 1950s that really try to, um, that served as precursor for the third worldism in the Middle East. Uh, so this is one project. And the other actually emerged from the responses that I got to this book. Um, and it, it's examining the Jewish-Iranian diaspora in Israel and, and the U.S. Uh, and it's in a way, it's continue. It's part B of the book because I I look at uh, at those communities and the way that they maintained Iranian national identity and uh, the narration of their exile. And what is their exile? Are they if they are Jews in Israel? of Iranian descent, are they Jewish diaspora or Iranian diaspora? <laughs> U.S., what part, how they are part or are they not part of the uh, Iranian community in the U.S.? Um, so, I mean, it's it's very exciting and I started to, uh, to collect uh, evidence and interviewees and documents. So if any of the listeners... <laughs> would like to participate i i welcome uh, any contribution you can reach out to me if you're interested and i'll forward you to lior thank thank you lior so there you have it folks between iran and zion jewish histories of 20th century iran by dr lior sternfeld thank you for being with us today lior thank you for having me thank you